At 3.32 on the 15th of July 1972, as this photograph was taken, modernism suffered another fatal blow, one of many that one might choose as evidence of its falling fortunes and the decline of its once firm position in all fields of culture. The place was St. Louis, Missouri, and the occasion was the destruction of housing complex Pruitt Ego. Built amid the prosperity and optimism of the early 1950s, this sprawling urban renewal project had replaced a poor neighbourhood on the city's north side with a complex of high-rise buildings designed by Minoru Yamasaki. Just two decades after its construction, amid plummeting demand from residents and escalating crime problems, its 33 towers were declared a failure, packed with dynamite and razed to the ground. The story of this development's rise and fall is a little more complex than this, but for postmodern architectural theorist Charles Jenks, its significance was clear. This was the day, he said, that, quote, modern architecture died. The differences between two more celebrated buildings that remain standing can provide a useful comparison to suggest the shift from modernism to postmodernism in the second half of the 20th century. The building on the left is Mies van der Rohe's Seagram building, completed in 1958. A landmark in the architectural style known as international style, its glass skin and structural elements are rigorously austere, stripped of decorative ornamentation, although with its steel beams clad in expensive bronze and its floors in travertine, its form is somewhat more lavish than the famous modernist demand that form follows function. Equally extravagant is the building's large open plaza, a public space presented as evidence of its builder's desire to improve the life of all New Yorkers, in line with the often utopian social ambitions of, modern, of modernism to improve, or as some would have it, to control, the life of its subjects. The rigid order of the Seagram building's external surfaces penetrated its interiors too. Its rigorously gridded and carefully planned interiors by modern, uh, Museum of Modern Art curator and architect Philip Johnson equally align with the building's modernist devotion to clarity and structure. 25 years later, Philip Johnson's idea of what might make a great skyscraper had changed, a shift epitomised by his AT&T building on the right, just a few blocks north of the modernist icon to which he had earlier contributed. <coughs> Though its shape owes much to the rectilinear filing cabinet form of its heirs, Johnson's sandstone face design includes grandiose decorative flourishes, a spectacular arched entranceway at the building's base and a giant open pediment decorating the top of the building. The latter feature wasn't really even a reference to historical architectural styles, as it was sourced without regard to scale or function from the style of 18th century cabinet maker Thomas Chippendale. By the mid-1980s, when Johnson's AT&T building was completed, 
the term postmodernism had been in circulation for some time. But it was this building which, more than any other, declared its legitimacy as a major architectural movement on an international scale. So architecture is a particularly clear stylistic territory to distinguish modernism from postmodernism. But I think we can go some way to finding an equivalent juxtaposition in the visual arts by considering these two works. On the left is Brancusi's Bird in Space, first created in 1928, a sleek form in which almost all realist detail is jettisoned to suggest streamlined speed. Its highly polished surface suggests something made by a machine, like the propeller blade that Duchamp famous, famously told Brancusi no sculpture could do any better than. Given the sense of futuristic optimism in a work like this, I think it should come as no surprise that when Mies van der Rohe and his colleagues were trying to identify a sculpture for the plaza of the Seagram building in the 50s, they unsuccessfully approached Brancusi to suggest the production of a rocket-scaled enlargement of this work. Fast forward to 1986 and we move from the grace of a bird in flight to the kitsch of a fairground bunny in Jeff Koons's Rabbit. Koons's sculpture was cast in steel from an inflatable store-bought toy, resulting in a substantial sculptural materiality that contradicts its appearance as a cheap inflatable. By appropriating and recontextualizing this manufactured object and confusing its status with the aesthetics of the avant-garde, Koons flaunts distinctions between popular taste and high art and suggests the implication of art in systems of luxury and consumption. So we've now had some modern and postmodern art and architecture, but given that such confusions at, between high and low that Koons enacts are so central to postmodernism, for this lecture I've also tried to include design, fashion, film, writing and music within my remit not only to indicate postmodernism's breadth of influence as style, but also to suggest its persistent blurring of the genres and categories that modernism had tried so hard to control. In many of these fields, the pinnacle of the postmodern moment came in the 1980s, but their emergence can also be seen as continuous with the growing pluralism of styles and movements that had characterized the arts since the 1960s. My lecture today will touch on a variety of the visual expressions of the postmodern, differentiating them from the modernisms which they both extended and rejected. I'll also start to explore postmodernism as an idea, a set of theoretical tools that occupy a central position in the intellectual history of the late 20th century and a major field for critical approaches to the study of art and visual culture. So the postmodern is not simply after modernism. It is also often explicitly against modernism, sometimes even anti-modernist, formulated as an explicit rejection of that which preceded it. This negative relation makes it useful to sketch some of those modernist beliefs that it sought to supplant. For art historians, one of the central ideas of modernism is the idea of an avant-garde. Envisaging art as a frontier 
uh, for the discovery of progressively new and ever more innovative artistic inventions, its ideal of a vanguard complies with the broader modernist face, faith in progress. Under modernism, rational thought was seen to offer an objective, dependable and transcendent basis for knowledge. The dissatisfaction in such beliefs falls into what theorist Jean-Francois Lyotard characterized as postmodernism's, quote, war on totality, an effort to replace the so-called grand narratives or master narratives of modernism with something more pluralistic, allowing for local and marginal differences. For Lyotard and others, postmodernism is properly sceptical of the idea of such large-scale systems, regarding them as tools designed to naturalise ideology and mask social inequality. So how might we understand this rejection of master narratives in visual terms? In the context of art history, Alfred Barr's famous flowchart, which I'm sure you have all seen before and um, I feel as though it is not possible to write any art historical lecture that doesn't include this image in it, might be taken as an expression of such goals, a kind of family tree for modernism, arranging its families according to the Darwinian rules of descent and species, or to consider another very modernist system, a kind of organisational chart for the proper chains of influence and command by which we are meant to understand its operation. Here, by way of comparison, I show you an influential organisational chart by management expert Alfred Sloan, which was uh, done for General Motors in the early 1920s. Uh, then revolutionary, now the entirely standard form by which businesses, as well as I would say museums and universities, organise staff for clear management responsibility and maximum efficiency. Perhaps even more suggestive of modernism's faith in science and technology is this less famous bar diagram in which the MoMA collection is itself envisaged as a missile. Its pointy end, well, sort of pointy end, representing the forward thrust of new art into which the museum would unstoppably speed forward. So these are the kinds of historical models that modernism constructs. What then might a postmodern history of art look like in diagrammatic form? Here is a diagram that Charles Jenks uses in his essay Postmodern and Late Modern to chart the characteristics of postmodern architecture. Like Barr's diagram, Jenks allows for multiple tendencies to coexist but he frequently puts the same architects across different fields uh, in his expanding and contracting thematic graphs, or sometimes at entirely different historical points in the lineage he sketches. Another yet more complex possibility comes from theorist, theorists Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's model uh, of the rhizome, a term that they adopt from biology with its endlessly connected semiotic chains, rejecting linear chronologies and the tree-like systems of modernism. To this end, I show you uh, this work by Turkish contemporary artist Burak Arikan, in which he takes a slice of the contemporary art world, 
in this case, the 4,592 applicants to the Berlin Biennale. Using their written applications to the event, the work maps their declared political sympathies into a complex interwoven network of 395 common terms, jettisoning those whose statements don't mention such goals for their art into the amorphous state shape to the left. And I think you can see that just sort of hovering to the left outside of this network diagram that he uh, uh, creates. As the internet age has made such networked relationships like friend networks and tag clouds ever more familiar, the structure of the rhizome has become an increasingly legible form in culture at large. Or perhaps to more fully abandoned modernist logic, maybe a postmodern art history would look something like this a poster that I'm sure you've seen out in the hallway, The Great Bear by uh, Simon Patterson. Here, the familiar order of the London subway map becomes the site for a constellation of engineers, philosophers, explorers, artists, and more. The endlessly rich possibilities of such a text complies with the interpretive freedom advocated by deconstructivists such as Jacques Derrida and Paul Deman who argued that because the meanings of texts relied on their interpreter and context, stable meanings were themselves impossible. Patterson's work encourages such interpretive instabilities as each line intersects in quite inexplicable ways, such that on the blue line we follow a journey from Vasari, Bronzino, Uccello, Michelangelo and Raphael and then footballer Gary Lineker, as one line crosses another, followed by Titian and then actor Kirk Douglas. Such an embrace of semiotic instability had been a key strategy for many conceptual artists working in the wake of modernism. Martha Rosler's The Bowery in Two Inadequate Descriptive Systems from 1972 juxtaposes the documentary style images of downtown New York streets littered with empty liquor bottles and the detritus of a Skid Row neighbourhood, with a panoply of synonyms for the drunken state of those invisible subjects it refuses to represent. Here, the linguistic mismatch not only destabilises the possibility of fixed meanings, but it points more politically to the inadequacy of the social system she depicts. While critics of postmodernism might decry its refusal of absolutes as cultural relativism gone wild, its efforts to destabilise those systems which we might accept as natural, from city planning to scientific names to the legal system, do remind us that these systems are themselves the product of human imagination. Because these systems often serve very particular interests, their disruption, disruption can therefore also be political, such as the intervention in the social situation of depressed Lower Manhattan, which is made in Rosler's work. The incorporation of performance represented another radical alternative to the individualism of art and the artist presented under modernism. The heroization of the modernist artist centred on the idea that these singular geniuses were able to produce 
a completely unique vision of the world. But for postmodernists, the identification of a singular, static, and stable self was merely a matter of representation and self-representation. Especially for feminist artist, artists, the acceptance of unstable, fragmented identities often turned to self-portraiture as a means to destabilize modernist assumptions about individual subjectivity. Most famously, Cindy Sherman's untitled film stills transformed the artist's body into an infinitely malleable material. Not one identity, but multiple personas. Drawn from Hollywood cinema's stock of stereotypes, but emptied largely of their narrative intelligibility. In subsequent works, Sherman has used costume and prosthetics to inhabit portrait genres whose reference points range from Renaissance painting to television franchise Real Housewives. In the collaborative work of performance artists such as Gilbert and George, such as their 1973 transformation into singing sculptures, or in Ule and Marina Abramovich's uh, marathon 17-hour performance in which their conjoined hair slowly unraveled, the modernist privileging of the single and stable artistic gesture is further compounded by the ephemeral nature, prolonged duration, and difficulty in distinguishing identity from performance that such works affect. So such concerns were felt well outside the world of performance art. The work of Madonna to take a more popular although I do realize now very much historical example, also complied with this emphasis on performance and transformation in postmodernism. With her endless string of makeovers, masquerade, and self-conscious artifice, Madonna became a kind of darling for postmodern theorists for her challenge to gender norms and sexual boundaries. In the video clip for her 1984 hit, Material Girl, Madonna reperformed scenes from Marilyn Monroe's 1954 Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend sequence in the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. In the 1990s, Madonna's track Vogue references a shopping list of references from the golden age of Hollywood, and in its video clip she poses in the style of famous photographs of many of its stars. Such performances were extended in her appearance as a sultry, starlet, breathless Mahoney in the cartoon-inspired 1990 film Dick Tracy. But cutting across such quotations were also more contemporary reference points. The New York gay subcultures that provided the dance style of Vogue, or her use of the postmodern fashion of Jean-Paul Gaultier to reclaim, at least as Madonna would see it, restrictive undergarments as signs of female sexuality and empowerment. Performers such as Madonna made theoretical questions about gender performativity a matter for mainstream pop culture and, of course, a, million, a means to sell millions of albums. As artists working within a postmodernist mode sought to de destabilize values of originality and authenticity, another key tactic to which they turned was appropriation. The well-known extreme of such 
practices is exemplified in 1980s photography. Sherry Levine, for instance, rephotographed the 1930s work of documentary photographer Walker Evans for her 1981 series after Walker Evans, making no or little modification to the content of the original images that she reproduced from the pages of a book. And I, I add that proviso little because I think there are uh, differences in terms of scale and cropping that are interesting to consider in these works. And the other thing that someone pointed out to me recently about this series is that um, is the copyright implications of these works, which are fascinating. The uh, original series of Walker Evans photographs were um, commissioned by the US government through the WPA um, Farm Administration uh, photography programs, um, and therefore in the public domain. So uh, her act of appropriation also uh, produces this very interesting commercial transfer where uh, a, a publicly owned image is able through the act of appropriation to um, transform itself into something that Sherry Levine herself has copyright over. Similarly, the work of Richard Prince re-photographed and cropped images from an advertisement for Marlboro cigarettes taking its commercial imagery of dubious moral standing as the basis for his grainy images of America's frontier sublime. Such strategies not only contravene the principles of artistic production under modernism, they flagrantly flaunted the legal and financial ownership of the visual material on which art's ownership and exchange is premised. In an important early essay on postmodern art written in 1980, Craig Owens understood these tactics of quotation as efforts to debunk modernist originality. In Owens's account, postmodernism's use of appropriation is ambivalent and contradictory. It both upholds and destabilizes ideology, always complicit, complicit with its low and commercial sources, but simultaneously remaining critical of them. Such optimistic claims for the radical potential of postmodernism were, however, more optimistic than those held by many of its critics. Among conservative commentators like Hilton Kramer, postmodernism was a, quote, creation of modernism at the end of its tether. For Kramer, writing in the early 1980s, the growing interest of art historians in 19th century academic painting and the pre-Raphaelites, both of which had been condemned as middle-class kitsch according to the dictates of modernism, itself was a symptom of postmodernism's abandonment of principles of quality and seriousness. In the world of museums, the kind of example that once attracted the ire of such critics was the revisionist program of the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, which opened in 1986. Here, visitors were presented with the masterpieces of Manet and Monet alongside previously dismissed painters like Jerome and Cabanel. To make things worse, this mingling of categories occurred in an architectural space no less concerned with crossing the boundaries between high and low, a former railway station converted by postmodern Italian architect Gay Olenti. 
Interestingly, the conservative condemnation of postmodernism by Kramer and others comes strikingly close to the concerns of theorists at the opposite end of the political spectrum. For the Marxist left, postmodernism's embrace of the popular and commercial represented the disillusion of modernism's faith in progress into an endlessly circular system of novelty. In their reading, serving capitalism as a ploy to increase consumption. A key proponent of this characterization is Frederick Jamison. Published in the same year that Philip Johnson completed the iconic postmodern skyscraper we saw earlier, Jamison's essay, Postmodernism or the Cultural Logic of, Logic of Late Capitalism, appeared in the neo-Marxist journal New Left Review, and would become the opening chapter of his 1991 book of the same name. Arguing that global capitalism had become less concerned with the production of goods and more with the reproduction of images, Jamison's model imagines the shift from modernism to postmodernism as a symptom of economic change. For Jamison, while modernism retained the ability to critique capitalism, in postmodernism, the victory of commodification is complete, with little opportunity for resistance or escape. So, as should be clear, one of the central themes that unites many of these ideas around postmodernism is the breakdown of boundaries between high and low culture. These are distinctions with which postmodernism has sought aggressively to undermine. Again, to turn to the field of architecture is instructive. Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown's 1972 book, Learning from Las Vegas, exemplifies the postmodern enthusiasm for the lowbrow. The book celebrates the diversity and decoration of commercial architecture as an antidote to the uniformity of modernism. Embracing spectacle and humor as positive qualities, their architectural model is not Le Corbusier, but instead decorated commercial buildings and giant signs, such as this 1950s drive-in donut store. Their valorizations of kitsch and the everyday certainly finds expressions in the early buildings of Frank Gehry, such as his advertising uh, his headquarters for advertising agency Chiat Day in Los Angeles, and in the visual arts in monuments such as this by Klaus Oldenburg. And in Venturi's own architecture, they were principles through which he would tackle the conventions of the museum itself. In this, his 1993 design for the Houston Children's Museum, whose target, I think, is not simply the uh, neoclassical facade of the museum um, that we all know in Oxford and I know in London very well, um, but also Mies van der Rohe's design for Houston's Museum of Fine Arts located just a couple of blocks east of Venturi's confection. It was such interests that caused Jamison and other observers of postmodernism to regard pop as its first art movement, with its embrace of low cultural forms like supermarket <coughs> packaging and comic books. 
Pop was indeed received by many critics at the time as an affront to the proper concerns of modern art, a vulgar corruption of its definitions and categories. But it is equally clear now, I think, that the art of Warhol, Lichtenstein and others did not represent a straightforward imitation of such low forms. In other words, these artists made significant transformations to their source materials as they took them from the dime store to the gallery. In Warhol's Campbell soup cans, for instance, what are we to make of the flat yellow disc uh, that, uh, to which he reduces the central medallion um, on the soup can? Or his inclusion of monochrome canvases alongside his reproductions of news photography. And how should we understand Warhol's quotation from mass culture in relation to mass culture's re-quotation of Warhol, such as this 1965 paper dress produced as a promotion by the makers of Campbell's Soup, but clearly referencing the pop aesthetics that Warhol had provided for their brand. Modernism had itself long been obsessed with quoting from diverse historical and non-Western sources, seeing so-called primitive and historical art forms as a vehicle to return to some kind of better pre-modern culture. Consider, for instance, the appropriation of imagery from posters by the French Impressionists, or Picasso's use of wallpaper and newspaper in his collages. As much as the breakdown between high and low cultural forms has been regarded then as a key trait of postmodernism, such borrowed sources can equally be seen as a defining quality of modernism itself. As Jamison saw it, however, postmodernism's interest in the low sources was different. For Jamison, postmodern quotations do not transform their source material. They remain just as commercial and degraded as the materials from which they quote. For artists working at one purported cusp of, between modernism and postmodernism in the visual arts, let's say the 1950s and early 1960s, the proximity of modernist prototypes to their own made such critiques even more urgent. Here, for instance, is Robert Rauschenberg's 1953 work, Erased de Kooning Drawing, thumbing its nose at the heroization of the ind individual artist genius, so central to modernist ideology, by meticulously erasing the marks of abstract expressionist Willem de Kooning, reassigning the newly blank object as the work of Rauschenberg himself the purity of abstraction taken to its logical extreme. And there's a great story about this work that I always love, which is that when Rauschenberg uh, visited de Kooning to ask for a drawing to which he could do this to, um, de Kooning hunted around forever to find a drawing that um, was uh, rendered with sufficient force into the paper such that it would be um, very difficult for Rauschenberg to erase uh, his marks, to make it as hard as possible uh, to um, uh, diminish his achievement, if you like. 
It was in fact Rauschenberg's later works that prompted art historian Leo Steinberg to first use the term postmodernism in the world of art, explaining in 1969 how Rauschenberg's embrace of a wide range of cultural images and artefacts were incompatible with the constraints of pre-modernist and modernist painting. To this end, consider these two works by Rauschenberg, Factum One and Factum Two, two different paintings that individually appear to be the very image of unique expression by reproducing its marks in precise detail, though they're not quite identical. And I love these kind of spot the difference games in the history of art, they're an enthusiasm of mine, um, exposing the reproducibility of supposedly unrepeatable modernist gestures such as the drip. Abstract expressionism, and above all the work of Jackson Pollock, has been among the richest sources of parody at the cusp between modernism and postmodernism. For those wishing to destabilize the heroism of modernism, its achievements have produced an almost unlimited stream of riffs. Such works are, I think, best thought of as postmodern, for their ironic tome cannot properly be regarded as simply taking abstract expressionist innovations and pushing them towards ever more advanced forms of modernism. For example, the splashy brushstrokes of Franz Klein rendered as nothing less reproducible than printed marks in the brushstroke series of Roy Lichtenstein. Or the sculptures of Linda Benglis on the left, where Pollock's flung paint remains ingloriously on the floor in viscous puddles of day-glow latex. Or on the right, one of the drawing machines of Jean Tangley, with which the operator can make machine-made abstractions, where spontaneity and directness of expression become just a matter of pressing a button. Or Andy Warhol's oxidation paintings, where Pollock's famously macho gestures uh, were transformed into the act of studio visitors leaving their own unrepeatable gesture by urinating on a copper panel. There is even, I think, a way to read David Hockney's A Bigger Splash into this trajectory, with its streams of flung white paint incorporated into the brash, flat realism of a Los Angeles swimming pool scene turning the paradigmatically abstract marks of the great American painter into the stuff of lowly pictorial illustration. In fact, perhaps the realism of the latter painting makes it the most postmodern of all of these works, with its return to realism representing, in the late 60s, the most profound rejection of modernist values. By the 1970s, the embrace of realism would reach new heights with the rise of so-called hyperrealism, such as the work of painter Richard Estes. For Jamison, such works evidenced what he called a, quote, new depthlessness, blandly reproducing their source material with blank photographic accuracy, apparently devoid of meaning or emotion. Estes' flashy display of technical skill is also deployed to nostalgic ends in representing a scene that, although it is from the artist's present, appears distinctly like that 
something from the past. <coughs> but in other instances, hyperrealism can have profoundly destabilizing potential. Consider the effect of Dwayne Hansen's sculptures in the space of the museum, where their cliches of lower middle class workers and tourists draws attention to the very different demographics of the gallery going public. There is, I think, undoubtedly a cold and flat tone to these realisms that makes them seem particularly suited to the culture of postmodern spectacle, not the flatness famously advocated by Clement Greenberg, but instead the flatness of screens and mirrors the victory of superficial surface appearances over deeper truth. So the latter ideas were most prominently argued by French theorist Jean Baudrillard. Drawing on semiotics and communication theory like Marshall McLuhan, Baudrillard defended the postmodern world as one of hyperreal image saturation and simulation in which the distinction between the real and the fake dissolves. Uh, and where what he calls sim the simulacrum, or an identical copy without an original, and here you might like to think of factum one and factum two that I showed you, um, becomes the cultural norm. Baudrillard famously turned to Disneyland as an example, uh, exemplar of this phenomenon. In his work Simulacra and Simulation, he argues that Disneyland is presented as imaginary in order to make people believe that its surroundings, i.e. everything outside the park, are real. According to Baudrillard, Los Angeles itself is an artificial construction, a hyper-real image that is more real than reality, such that the self-contained illusions of the theme park serve to fool its visitors into thinking that everything in the outside world, in their everyday lives, is in fact reality. The excesses, the evident excesses of such claims and the tendency of much writing about postmodernism to be the site of considerable confusion and sometimes incomprehensibility became the basis for many attacks on postmodern theory um, in the 90s and 2000s. Some of these used parody to make their point. Um, one of my favourites of these is an Australian website uh, called the Postmodern Generator which was developed in 1968 by, uh, 1996 by an academic at Monash University. And it uses random algorithms to generate imitations of postmodern writing. Um, I ran it uh, last night again and got a fascinating essay called this time, Constructivism and Neo-Dialectic Appropriation. Um, uh, I would like to have given you all a copy to read, uh, but I didn't want to waste the paper, but if you uh, Google this website, you will find it yourselves, and you too can generate um, extraordinarily, extraordinarily convincing postmodern writing um, uh, techniques with, uh, that I trust you all now know uh, not to imitate and to avoid, no matter how often postmodern theorists get set to you by um, people like me. With a more serious intent, uh, NYU physics professor Alan Sokol submitted a hoax article written in a postmodern style to the journal Social Text in 1996 and then used its acceptance by this supposedly peer-reviewed journal 
to argue against the failure of postmodern theory to meet the requirements of evidence and rationality that he judged as necessary for the academic study of the humanities as well as the sciences. In the world of art, the frequently postmodern journal October was spoofed in an underground, and I would say quite difficult to get your hands on, parody, which was titled November. Um, uh, I believe written by graduate students, I'm not quite sure where, uh, which comprised an entire full issue of the magazine, complete with fake authors, fake essays, and even fake footnotes. All of which, I think every footnote, um, cites uh, books published by the MIT Press, uh, the, the uh, publisher favoured by so many of this journal's contributors. In a way, such textual characters caricatures are themselves eminently postmodern, with their often meaningless combinations of quotation and imitations of style. But their critical edge also sets them apart from how many theorists have distinguished the modernist strategy of parody from what Jamison calls the postmodern strategy of pastiche. In making this distinction, Jamison criticizes the latter appropriations of the past as a sign of what he dubs postmodernism's, quote, historical deafness. According to Jamison, parody has in the postmodern age been replaced by pastiche. And I quote here, quote, pastiche is, like parody, the imitation of a peculiar or unique idiosyncratic style, the wearing of a linguistic mask, speech in a dead language but it is a neutral practice of such mimicry without any of parody's ulterior motives, amputated of the satiric impulse, devoid of laughter. In such a world of pastiche then, history gets turned into a series of mere styles. Here we might consider a sculpture such as this one by Roy Lichtenstein in which the glamorous balustrading of the Art Deco period becomes a kind of freestanding sculpture. Or a design such as this, Hans Holline's Marilyn Sofa from 1981, a Hollywood casting couch that takes Art Deco to its outlandish extreme. Both are objects whose homage to the 1930s can be seen to show little awareness of the historical circumstances, technological capacities, or social conditions from which they derive. The example that Jamison uses is the way in which postmodern architecture randomly and, and again this is a quote, quote, randomly and without principle but with gusto cannibalizes all the architectural styles of the past and combines them in overstimulating ensembles. By Jamison's account, postmodernism encourages us to understand the past as nothing more than a repository of genres and codes ready for re-commodification. Here, Jamison follows the position of Lyotard, who saw the apparent cultural diversity of postmodern style as just the triumph of capitalism. As he writes, quote, by becoming kitsch, art panders to the confusion which reigns in the taste of the patrons. Artists, gallery owners, critics, and public wallow together in the, quote, anything goes, and the epoch is one of slackening. But the realism of anything goes is in fact that of money. 
In the absence of aesthetic criteria, it remains possible and useful to assess the value of works of art according to the profits they yield. No less than its connections with popular cultures of music, fashion and film, the global character of postmodernism in the fine arts is, for Lyotard, an expression of its profit motives. It is appropriate then that Jamison uses examples from Hollywood film to exemplify the postmodern favour for revival. Describing what he calls nostalgia films, he explains that the cinematic mode particular to the 80s and 90s created collages that tapped into past times and past films, pasting these fragments together in a pastiche. One might think of the cross-historical and intertextual references in Back to the Future films, such as when, in the third film of the franchise, Michael J. Fox's character arrives in the Wild West, calls himself Clint Eastwood, and mocks Western movie cliches in a Main Street shootout. Or, to cite a more recent example, the strangely familiar image of the 20s as seen in Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby, through the lens of 21st century Times Square and Strobelit dance clubs. Um, and I don't know if anyone saw um, Hail Caesar on the weekend. Has anyone seen it yet? No. I'm the only one silly, silly enough to fork out 14 quid to see it. It's not very good, but it does make a, <laughs> a fascinating case for the endurance of these kind of um, uh, intermingling of period references um, as style uh, and its kind of continued resonance in contemporary cinema. Um, so see it for that reason alone. For Jamison, the failure to understand history as anything other than mere style is dangerous. Suffering from, quote, historical amnesia, locked into the discontinuous flow of perpetual presence. The, the nostalgia film, he argues, has lost its sense of history and a sense of a possibility of a future different from the present, a depoliticization that Jamison's Marxism cannot abide. For the writers of October, it was the return to realism of 1980s painters that seemed to be especially retrograde in its political leanings. In the work of European artists such as Sigmar Polka and Francesco Clemente, and then in New York with artists such as Julian Schnabel and David Sarli, work was characterised by their embrace of the personal, the biographical, the expressive and the figurative. For theorists of postmodernism concerned about the conservatism of such work, the collage of imagery and expressive styles it used represented a superficial and cynical attempt to cater to a booming art market, starved for large-scale paintings since the rise of conceptual art. It is true, I think, that the ironic tone um, of the kind of parodic takes on abstract expressionism I showed you earlier have a wit that is missing from such self-declaredly postmodern quotations of the 1980s. But I also think its reputation as cold and superficial is sometimes just a matter of art historians having not yet subjected its forms to serious scrutiny. In the works of Haim Steinbach, 
for example, the triangular laminate shelves float on the wall, operating somewhere between home decoration and the modular, modular minimalism of wall sculptures by Donald Judd. On the surface of this work, Steinbeck mounts ready-mades from the world of consumer goods. But I think here his choices are no mere random selections. On the left is a modernist picture in the streamlined Art Deco mode designed by Frederick Reed. It's styling having trickled down from Cubism to the mass-produced Fiesta wear range. On the right are three supermarket packages of washing detergent. Their design equally connected to the stripes and acute angles of 60s hard-edged abstract painting. The sort of painting for which the highest critical claim was to be dubbed bold, here multiplied by three, both in the title of the powder and in Steinbeck's repetition. Just as Reed's jug had been reissued in new colours for the 1980s, the idea that slick neo-geo abstraction was remaking real modernism into mere commodities ignores the fact that modern art and commodity culture had long been deeply entangled. Far from a superficial assemblage of meaningless objects, a work such as this strikes me as a powerful intervention into the commercial entanglements of modernism itself. And if critics of postmodernism have worried that its forms merely comply with the incorporation of art into the world of money, I think there are signs that contemporary art continues to seek to challenge that system, or at least wreak havoc with its values. Ai Weiwei's addition of a Coca-Cola logo to an ancient urn seems to me powerfully postmodern in its failure to respect the authority of the original artefact in its gesture of appropriation. In other works, the artist is seen to show even less respect for the rare object as he drops them to the floor to watch them smash into pieces. In the former case, however, as much as the urn was a valuable artefact when the artist appropriated it, it ironically became still more valuable when it had been defaced with the image of capitalism and absorbed into the world of global contemporary art. Such paradoxes are especially rife, I think, in the world of street art, and as the example of Banksy and his varied commercial incorporations suggest. Not long ago, another of Ai Weiwei's pots became itself the subject of an intervention, as an artist to as an artist visitor to a Miami art museum staged their own destructive performance in an exhibition of Ai Weiwei's work, following the artist's lead by smashing one of his paint-dripped urns onto the floor of the museum. So, I began with the destruction of a building, and one way to end this lecture, lecture would be to uh, turn to the destruction of another building. Um, if the collapse of Pruitt Ego represents a... That's not that ending. Um, <laughs> if the collapse of Pruitt Ego represents a milestone for cultural change, then it should come as no surprise that the collapse of the World Trade Center, its 110-storey towers, also by Minoru Yamasaki, 
has been claimed by some as an end of postmodernism. In some quarters, postmodernism was condemned for rejecting the very possibility of objective truth, insisting instead that reality is only a construction of culture or of the mind. But of course, those plummeting bodies were no mere representation. And given that I've ruined my real ending to this lecture by fast forwarding, it's, I think, kind of telling my inability to include an image of that in this slide and, and the kind of real power that, that uh, images can and do have in culture. On 9-11, objective reality made its presence felt in the most horrifying of ways. And now we get there. So, but I think to end a lecture on postmodernism on that note would be entirely wrong. And so, at the risk of sounding um, horribly flippant, I will in turn instead to Lady Gaga's last album, Art Pop. If Madonna became, in the 1980s and 1990s, a staple for postmodern theorists, the appropriations and self-transformations of Lady Gaga have carved an even more strategic relation with postmodernist art. Two examples that straddle the worlds of art and music seem particularly relevant. For the new album, Gaga collaborated with Jeff Koons on sculptural installations for the album cover and launch, and she worked with Robert Wilson, uh, experimental theatre producer, to uh, produce distinctly Cindy Sherman-styled videos in which she appears in Jacques-Louis David's Death of Marat and in other historical paintings, and also with Marina Abramovich, with whom she studied performance art techniques. Such shifts between art and popular culture are the declared theme of her track Applause. Quote, one second I'm a Coons, then suddenly the Coons is me, its lyrics declare. And I can't tell you how hard it is to read those lyrics without trying to imitate or um, affect some of, some, of, some of the way they're said, but it, they end up sounding like terribly boring postmodern theory. But uh, postmodern, po pop culture was in art, now art's in pop culture in me. Gaga, since her arrival on the pop scene, has frequently referred to her interest in video and performance art. So all of this is perhaps not so surprising, but it, it comes as more of a shock for hip-hop impresario Jay-Z to be engaging in the same genre-mixing activities. So I conclude with two images from uh, the recent, well, the 2013 performances um, Jay-Z did at New York's Pace Gallery, uh, which took inspiration from Marina Abramovich's 2010 performance, The Artist is Present. Jay-Z wrapped his single, uh, Picasso Baby, for six hours straight in front of a small crowd that included Abramovich herself. Uh, more recently, Kanye West has also compared himself to Picasso, and <laughs> he, he likes Da Vinci too, I believe. Um, and in addition to the ambiguous reference of his new album title, Life of Picasso, has repeatedly collaborated with global art stars like Takeshi Murakami and Vanessa Beecroft to bolster his self-declared genius. In the corridors of museum tastemaking, in part, I think, disturbed by the boundary-crossing commercial success 
of names such as Coons, Abramovich, Murakami and Beecroft, these names are largely verboten. But in the colliding worlds of global contemporary art, popular music, consumer culture and celebrity, the tenets of postmodernism, I suspect, are alive and well. Thank you.